you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Several LAUSD elementary schools get back in business tomorrow. We'll hear what's on the reopening agenda. Plus, over 100 years ago, the city of Manhattan Beach condemned shoreline property owned by black families. LA County Supervisor Janice Hahn says she's ashamed over the historical injustice and about one other thing that she says she is to blame for. It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up, as Los Angeles Unified begins to welcome back kids this week, all school districts through L.A. have now resumed in-person instruction. But since some of our youngest students may have not ever stepped foot in a classroom, we've got a little advice on how to help them transition. That's coming up just ahead. But first, California recently passed another grim milestone of more than 60,000 coronavirus deaths. But the state has a lot to be thankful for. Vaccinations are happening at a rapid pace across the state, and we've avoided the spring surge that some other states are experiencing right now. And this week, all across the state, everyone 16 years and older will be eligible to get a shot. Here to talk about all this is Dr. Rhea Boyd, a Bay Area pediatrician and public health advocate. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Now, L.A. County is opening up vaccines to everyone 16 and over starting tomorrow. Now, that eligibility doesn't kick in statewide until Thursday, but already a handful of counties have started to do that. Doctor, how important is this in terms of all of us turning a corner? It's so important. We know what we need to reach herd immunity is 80% of folks being vaccinated in this country. And that includes young people. It includes teenagers and young adults. So it's so important that we're able to now start vaccinating adolescents down to age 16. And it sounds like Pfizer is applying to have emergency use authorization down to age 12, which will also help us get closer to that goal. Doctor, is a pediatrician wondering if, if there are any concerns at all you might have about having uh, people this young be, be part of this? I, I know it, it all eventually has to happen, but I think parents, when it comes to their kids, are always concerned and worried no matter what. Absolutely. And so are we as pediatricians. And it's why we've been following the safety data from the clinical trials for these vaccines from the very beginning. And we see that similar great safety profile for adolescents down to age 16 currently and um, coming now new data coming down to age 12. So the safety data is really great. And the effectiveness of the vaccine in the kids that have been in the clinical trials is also really great. Curious, what kind of conversations are you having with uh, parents or, or the families that you work with? Uh, is, is there relief, concern, and, and, and who's feeling that and why? I think it's a mixed bag. People are eager to be vaccinated. I think there's a large slice of our population that is you know, looking forward to these vaccinations. I think there still is a sizable group of folks who have concerns, including parents who have specific concerns about using the COVID vaccines with their kids. Um, and so I think 
people have really just been coming, trying to open up this conversation. If the Pfizer vaccines do receive emergency use authorization, you know, what would we think about that? And would we recommend it for their kids? And based on the safety profile and how incredibly effective the Pfizer vaccine was found to be in its clinical trial, we absolutely recommend that um, kids become vaccinated as soon as they're eligible in their area. Yeah. Should parents treat this vaccine for COVID in the same way they would treat uh, like measles, mumps, that kind of thing? How parents typically approach the other vaccines, many of which are required for kids to go to public schools, is they ask questions about it and they have those questions answered. For most of the vaccines um, that kids receive for schools, there is an information sheet that the CDC has created that's required for us to give to every parent to tell them about that vaccine. I think parents are approaching the COVID vaccines in the exact same way. Tell us the information. Tell us how it works. Tell us the potential side effects and how effective it can be for kids. And so um, pediatricians like myself are kind of preparing for that process so that we can educate parents the same way we've been trying to educate, you know, the entire U.S. population about the COVID vaccines. A recent editorial in the LA Times called for kids to be back in the classroom, taught by teachers, and to get there, more school sites uh, should be offering vaccines, especially for families in hardest-hit communities. It's something Los Angeles Unified is offering, but in a limited scope. Uh, Dr. Wu, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, to, to, to have uh, kids be back in the classroom, school sites should be just offering as many vaccines as possible. First, I'll just say the debate about school closures and schools reopening has been one of the most contentious debates we've had throughout the pandemic. First, there were a lot of debates about whether the school settings can be safe, and the CDC has shown us incredible data that there are safe ways to allow kids to return to school. And now, as more kids become eligible um, to receive the vaccine, there's questions about whether that might make the school environment even more safe for kids. The bottom line is this. We should think about kids as a part of the communities in which they live and the families in which they're a part. And so, as a part of communities and families, vaccinating kids is a really critical part part of us reaching herd immunity. Once we can reach herd immunity as a population, we will all feel more comfortable with what it takes to put our kids back in school. I think until we get to that point, it would be really difficult to determine how safe a school environment is based on vaccination alone if only some kids in the school were vaccinated, but not the rest of the school population, for example. So I think we absolutely have to be focusing on vaccinating kids as they become eligible, but we also have to focus on all of the other safety precautions that we know are necessary to make school environments safe for kids during this pandemic. You know, Doctor, every time news comes out about a virus variant, it always seems to cast a dark shadow over the progress that's being made with the vaccines. And we are seeing higher rates of cases in young people. What's going on there? You know, it's really important for everybody to understand that viruses mutate normally. So the fact that we have um, new strains of the COVID uh, virus or that it's changing over time, it's really important for people to know that this is the typical process of viruses, that as they try to replicate or copy themselves, they sometimes make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are not helpful and it makes the virus less likely to transmit to people and infect people. And sometimes they're very helpful and it helps the virus transmit more easily. And what we're seeing now and tracking really closely are the type of mutations or changes or strains or variants in the COVID virus that can make it more transmissible. And what we're noticing is that as those um, variants become more common, so now the most common um, strain of COVID that folks are infected with in this country is known as B117, which is the strain that was isolated originally in the UK. Um, what we're seeing from that strain is that it is more transmissible and that it also may contribute to more serious infection. And so as we watch that strain become um, more prevalent, our work to continue to get our population vaccinated as quickly as we can becomes that much more important. It's great for people to know that the vaccines we have now give good protection against B117 or the strain that was isolated in the UK and that you also can protect yourself from transmission by wearing masks and physically distancing and not gathering in groups in areas that don't have adequate ventilation. 
We're talking to Dr. Rhea Boyd, Bay Area pediatrician and public health advocate. Um, Last time you and I spoke, that was back in March, we talked about vaccine hesitancy versus a lack of access when it comes to black people getting the vaccine. So remind us, doctor, if you could, what do you think has driven the lower rates of people of color signing up for the shot? Communities of color or Black folks in particular who have really been the top of these headlines about vaccine hesitance, we don't have data to tell us that those communities are any less likely to want the COVID vaccine really than any other racial group. Instead, what we see is that Black folks are second to last in COVID vaccinations because they don't have equal access to the COVID vaccines in their communities. And so at multiple levels, at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level, there have been providers like myself who have been working incredibly hard over the last few months to make sure we are prioritizing access for the COVID vaccines in the communities who have been disproportionately affected, which absolutely includes Black communities, Indigenous communities, and tribal territories and lands, and other communities of color. Let me ask you this, doctor, because you're not the first person that has told us this, that it's all about access and not about hesitancy. I spoke to a a doctor at a clinic in South Los Angeles who said the same thing. Like the people that I'm working with, they want the vaccine. They just don't know how to go about and get it. So what do you think accounts for this this whole idea of hesitancy? Is it one of those self-fulfilling prophecies where if someone says it out loud over and over again, everyone says, yeah, I guess I am hesitant. You know, I think in a way it is. I think we as a public health infrastructure in this country have a rich tradition of actually blaming communities of color for their poor or worse health outcomes. We usually blame communities by saying the reason you have higher rates of certain chronic illnesses is because of your own choices. It's because of what you choose to eat or how you choose to live. That process means that we have not um, analyzed and appropriately addressed the ways that the environment in which people live actually constrains their choices. So if you don't live in a neighborhood, for example, that has grocery stores, your choice of what to eat is not just a reflection of like your cultural background or your racial group. It's a reflection of what you have access to. And so we're trying to say the same thing right now as we see um, inequitable rates of the COVID vaccine by racial group, that it's not people's choices not to be vaccinated. It's that they don't have equal access to even choose the COVID vaccine when they want to. And like the other provider said, we're hearing from communities of color across the country that they want to be vaccinated. But the biggest barrier is it's difficult to sign up. There's no vaccine near them. um, And so it's hard for them to get there. Can you tell us about your campaign to, to help to help steer the conversation away from hesitancy and make it more about access and, and for to provide more information? Partnered with the Kaiser Family Foundation and Black Coalition Against COVID, we have developed a campaign called The Conversation Between Us, About Us. It features Black healthcare workers, Black doctors, nurses, and researchers. And we're talking specifically to Black communities across the country about the COVID vaccines. We're answering the questions that we hear every day in our practice and the questions that we've learned through Kaiser Family Foundation's research polling Black communities about their concerns about the COVID vaccine so that people can understand that these vaccines are incredibly safe, they're incredibly effective, they're absolutely free, and that we're working to make sure it's available in your communities. Doctor, have you noticed a, a change for the better on this? You know, I have. If you look over the last year at polls that asked Black communities in particular, are you interested in getting the COVID vaccine? The percentage of folks who have said, no, I'm not interested, definitely no, has gone down, 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 down. And the percentages of folks who have said, I'd like to get the vaccine today if I was eligible and had it in my area has gone up, 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 up. What we're seeing is that as folks have their questions and concerns responded to in a respectful, loving way, folks then can make a choice for themselves. And many people are choosing to get vaccinated. And we're really encouraged by that. Funny how it works. If you show that you care about people, (laughs) they'll react a completely different way. Um, Okay. Zeroing in on on vaccine supply for a second, the number of the single dose Johnson and Johnson vaccines is expected to plummet in California this week and next. So remind us what that's about. While the federal government has been working incredibly hard to make sure that we can increase vaccine supply in this country enormously to meet the growing demand, 
some of what has held up vaccine supply has been production issues. And that particularly has been the case for Johnson and Johnson. There have been some issues um, with a few of the larger shipments of Johnson and Johnson vaccines that have delayed those shipments or for some shipments meant that they could not go out at all. And so as a result across the country, um, states like our state in California and states everywhere are going to get much fewer doses of Johnson & Johnson in the next upcoming weeks. Um, I know that folks are working around the clock to fix that problem, but what it means is that it has delayed um, the increase in supply that we were all expecting to be occurring over these couple of weeks. And so healthcare organizations and other partners who are um, distributing the vaccine are having to um, kind of manage that change in supply and and manage the change in expectations of the patients who are waiting to get these vaccines. And this all comes at a time when everyone is supposed to get vaccinated. Uh, wondering what the effect of this might be. Uh, doctor, is there any reason for alarm? I think there's no reason for alarm because we are still working so hard around the clock to make sure that vaccine production can pick back up. Um, it may mean for certain folks that you are rescheduled on the day that you receive your vaccine. And if that's the case, um, please go the next day that you are rescheduled for. Um, it may mean for other people that your provider reaches out to you um, to delay when you receive the vaccine. So I would stay in good communication with your provider or the source that you're considering to get your vaccine from uh, to make sure that when your turn is up, that you are well aware so that you can be there. That's Dr. Rhea Boyd, Bay Area pediatrician and also a public health advocate. Doctor, as always, thank you very much. Thank you so much. We've been talking about uh, a lot about the big California reopening this summer. We've heard from the experts, but now we want to hear from you, our listeners. How do you feel about reopening in June? Excited? Nervous? Tell us why. You can leave us a message on our voicemail at 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. And don't forget to leave your name and where you're from. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay right there. Where you lead me. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. Many of LA's kids have returned to school and starting this week, finally students in the largest school district, LA Unified, have the opportunity to go back to class in person. Several of LAUSD's elementary schools reopen officially tomorrow while other campuses will welcome back kids next week. Now, also this morning, the district announced some plans for possibly extending the school year. So for more on all of this, we have with us KPCC's K-12 education reporter, Kyle Stokes. Kyle, now, how many school campuses campuses will reopen this week versus the schools starting up again uh, next week. And, and where is all that happening? You know, lesson in the size and scope of the LA Unified School District here. This is a district of more than 700 elementary schools, and uh, they're going to reopen 72 uh, elementary and early education centers this week. So just about 10% of the district, and it's still, if it only reopened these schools, it would still be one of the state's largest school districts that's reopening. Uh, so even slow has has big implications. Uh, and the, over the course of this week, we're going to start with kindergartners and 
first graders tomorrow. And then Wednesday, second and third graders, the rest of the elementary students join on Thursday. And then it all you know starts over again next week as most of the rest of those 700 plus elementary schools start returning students to campus next week. So that's that's what is happening uh, currently. But and this is the, even these early reopening campuses, they're all over the map. They are really geographically diverse. It's not just the the campuses uh, uh, in the you know higher income areas where there is a little more interest in sending back, students back to campus. This is all over the district where these uh, early starters are, are, are beginning to open. Now, I know some parents aren't ready to send their kids back. Does uh, LAUSD know what percentage will actually be returning in person? Yeah, it's been a pretty consistent uh, in the two thirds to two fifths, you know, kind of around that 40% mark of overall students, uh, at least at the elementary level, wanting to send their students back in person. Um, but that obviously there is a little bit of variation depending on the neighborhood that we're talking about. So I think it's safe to say that in general, a majority of students will not be returning to campus tomorrow. Um, but in some neighborhoods, the, the, the percentage could be particularly low. I, I mean, you know, we don't have exactly like up to, you know, like minute to minute figures, but mm -hmm. the latest figures I've seen is that even in in places like like Boyle Heights or or MacArthur Park or, or downtown, um, the, the numbers of students coming back to, even to elementary campuses are, is going to be quite small. Quite small. Okay. I was wondering because any sense of who makes up the returning students and why they're choosing to do so rather than staying at home. Well, I, this is a complicated question because obviously you have a lot of fear out there among parents uh, about the virus. I mean, we're talking about the some of the neighborhoods that I just mentioned, particularly the East Side neighborhoods, South LA, the East San Fernando Valley. All of these are neighborhoods that that are served heavily by LAUSD and also have been just racked by the virus, a lot of cases and deaths, um, and, and so natural fears about sending your students back into you know gatherings and, and in person settings. Things. On the other hand, I think there's also when we're talking about like at the high school level, I think it gets even more complicated because you're talking about students who are, you know, potentially old enough, you know, the, the risk of transmission somewhat higher among older students, but you can't, it, you know, only 16 and 17 year olds are eligible for some vaccines. So that's a consideration. The other thing is that the middle and high school reopening plan uh, is not particularly popular in some quarters because it's basically students are going to come back and, and continue continue to uh, attend classes via Zoom just from inside a classroom. So that's a consideration as well that might be depressing interest in returning to, to classrooms. Throughout, though, I should just say, A, the constant is, you know, district officials saying we need to be open because there are some students who just need a place to go. You know this, Kyle, uh, from reaching an agreement on a reopening plan to coordinating logistics, reopening seems to have been a very arduous process for LAUSD. And there are some who wish uh, that LAUSD had gone further with the reopening plans, right? Right. In fact, this has recently spawned a lawsuit against LAUSD, too, in fact. But the, the one that was filed recently against the district was uh, from parents um, who have hired the same attorneys that have successfully, you know, gotten blocked the state from enforcing the six foot separation rule. Or I should say at the state level, it was the four foot rule. But in LAUSD, it's the six foot rule uh, that says that students and staff must all stay six, six feet apart from each each other at all times. Now, the the CDC, after the LAUSD reached this agreement and set this six-foot rule, um, the, the, the CDC has said that actually three feet can be okay. Um, and, and so the parents have sued, and one of the key things that they want to strike down is, is LAUSD abiding by the, the, three, the six-foot rule because they say it's blocking students from being able to return more quickly to in-person instruction, that the district's uh, overall plan has been too cautious. So the there's a, you know, from the concerns I mentioned about coming back to class to campus at all versus, on the other hand, parents who who are talking about uh, a, a quicker return to pre-pandemic normal. It's a it's a wide range of opinions about about this reopening of campuses plan. So considering all that stickiness that we just talked about, I mean, I know LAUSD is going to be opening up space on campuses to serve as vaccine clinics for families and also members of the community. So what's the wisdom then of having these things at those sites? 
Yeah, it's about as, you know, the superintendent of Austin Butner has been very clear throughout all this that he sees schools as natural service centers. Mm. And and it fits into this model that he sees community, the schools as essential parts of communities and that families might trust, you know, having schools as natural delivery points for services. Hence, you know, a lot of the decisions that the district has made throughout from the very beginning, distributing food relief, um, they, the district is winding down its meal distribution distribution program, 122 million meals that they've distributed. They also set up a COVID testing uh, system, which they're now using uh, as part of their reopening uh, plan. Um, again, out of the thought that we need to, that schools are exist in these in these communities as natural service centers. So we should give them, for example, that the time COVID testing, which started up last fall. And now here with vaccination sites, I mean, when I was taught, when I visited a vaccination site, the head of the um, community health clinic operator that that was actually running the site. It's basically just hosted on, on LAUSD campuses. He said, we wouldn't have the, the space to be able to ha- give out this many vaccines at our tiny little community clinics. So there's sort of a natural partnership there. And again, a play, a, point, a, a natural service point on, a, on an LAUSD campus. Now, Kyle, about uh, the fall, LAUSD has been uh, polling parents about the possibility of an extended school year. Uh, Superintendent Austin Butner said this morning, the district has a recommendation about that. So what's the plan? Yeah, the recommendation is to extend the school year for starters. So the and the specific plan that the superintendent is recommending is to add one week of, of school in August. So basically start a week early and then cut a week off of winter break and, and restart the second semester uh, a little bit early in uh, January. Not all of this will be classroom time. Part of it will be socio-emotional work and training for, for teachers. Um, but that is the plan that they prefer. It's going to be a debate and a discussion at the school board coming up uh, in the coming weeks. Is that a done deal then uh, that the school year will be extend for all students? And not a done deal. I mean, there are some parents who don't necessarily want this to happen. There may be some lobbying of the school board to to go with the non-extension option. Uh, you know, parents who don't think that that you can really meaningfully address whatever deficits have been created uh, in this last year with just a few extra days of instruction, or who probably dispute for for their own reasons that this learning loss crisis, um, you know, exists or is measurable. That's a whole other you know d- debate about how we measure. Uh, student learning. Um, but I, I don't know. It's, it is certainly not a done deal. It's got to go through the school board at yeah, this point. Because that's what I was going to say. Yeah, two weeks is not going to make, or at least doesn't sound like it possibly make up for everything that was lost. On the other hand, I mean, this is a big, you know, priority of the governor who has been bringing up this idea going back to last summer. And, and you know, I'm sure there are some some teachers who would say we could use every minute we could get. One more thing, Kyle. I know LAUSD is going to get a lot of press for the return to campuses this week, but dozens of school districts all over the place have students on campuses already, and almost all Orange County districts have been in a hybrid mode for months. So how does LAUSD fit into that overall context? Yeah, I mean, it sort of goes back to the the, the discussion we were having earlier about whether the district is moving too cautiously. Um, you know, the the superintendent and the teachers union—that's the primary point of negotiation, and the reason that we are having schools open at this point is because th- this is when the the teachers union and the and the school district agreed that this could that the school district could reopen. Uh, superintendent Butner has gotten a lot of criticism from some quarters for being a little bit too, uh, you know, too cozy with a teachers union when it comes to reopening. They've agreed on a lot of overarching points. For example, that teachers needed to be vaccinated first when we've had a lot of other districts uh, in LA County that have returned without that promise in place. Um, so so uh, you could say that LAUSD fits into that context that they're coming in later. At the same time, they had to fight, if you want to compare them to say like a Long Beach, which has been where schools uh, have been welcoming students back for about a month now. Um, Long Beach has its own health department that they, they had easier access to the vaccine um and uh you know so and california had a really terrible surge uh, in in the winter worse than than was seen elsewhere um so maybe that explains why for example la has taken longer to reopen and chicago and new york uh have had schools open for in-person instruction and fits and starts so that's kind of the the bigger picture context here kyle stokes has never been closed though kyle stokes is always open with information <laughs> and reporting all the time that's kpcc's k-12 through Education reporter Kyle Stokes. Kyle, thanks a lot. Thank you, sir.
All right, now turning to the youngest students, LAUSD will be welcoming back many kindergartners and pre-kindergartners this week. And 11 early education centers that enroll kids between two and four years old are also opening tomorrow. So how to prepare them for the transition to in-person learning. KPCC's Mariana Dale has been talking to educators and mental health experts. Uh, Mariana, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. So what are some uh, tips for families getting ready to transition to in-person learning, some of them for the first time? Yeah, first day of school. <laughs> One of the people <laughs> I talked to is Chris Loit. He's a licensed psychologist, and he directs the Birth to Five program at the behavioral health nonprofit Pacific Clinics in Southern California. And he says the preparation actually really starts with the parents and caregivers themselves. He recommends they take just a few minutes to think about what their own feelings about going back to school are. And this can happen just as part of like an everyday conversation with a friend or family member. Just in the process of talking about it, we realized feelings that were there, but we weren't really aware of them. And the reason it's important for parents to be aware of their own feelings is that the kids are watching and they often shape their own feelings, their own reactions based on those of the adults around them. Kids really take a lot of cues from their caregivers about how to react to things. And if the caregivers are really positive and excited and enthusiastic, more often than not, kids will follow that lead. Those little eyeballs are always working, Mariana. They're <laughs> always working. Now, what else can families do to help their children be more comfortable going back to school? Well, in normal times, which these certainly are not, uh, Lloyd would typically recommend that families try and tour the school ahead of time. The more familiarity kids have with what's going to happen and where, the better. Well, in-person visits aren't really an option right now, but I was looking online and several schools are offering virtual video tours of their campuses, so that might be something to ask the teachers about. And it's important to remember that when parents drop off their kids in the morning, they're not going to be able to go inside and get them all settled in the classroom. So Lloyd recommends creating a morning routine that is three things, caring, consistent, and predictable. Won't go inside. If I had pearls on, I'd be clutching them right now. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to stop the goodbye tears? No, there's no guarantee of that. Um, And and Lloyd actually says that five to 15 minutes of crying is pretty normal for younger kids. And in his experience, it doesn't really help when the parents like draw out the whole leaving (laughs) process. Okay, so it's the grown-up's fault. Okay, fine. Um, (laughs) What about changes inside the classroom? Well, teachers should be talking about this with their students right now. Um, Each child is going to have their own learning materials, so a little less sharing than before. If they're over age two, they're going to be wearing a face covering, and everyone is going to be expected to keep at least a six-foot distance. And District Early Childhood Educator Maria Gutierrez was telling me that this rule, like, needs a little bit more explanation for little kids. We give them an example of the length of a comfy couch. Like maybe two big dogs together kissing each other, you know? (laughs) And and she's also introducing her students to some new ways of saying hello, like air hugs and blowing kisses to help the kids keep their distance. Now, we've heard a lot about how consistent routines can help younger kids. Going to preschool or even daycare is really a big disruption to what a lot of families have been doing for a long time now. Was there any other advice that stuck out to you? Mm-hmm. And it comes from Nakia Fields. Uh, she's an Altadena-based licensed clinical social worker and counselor. Allow grace for self and for others. Breathe. So one breath. <laughs> and she says that everything is, you know, not always going to go according to plan. And that's okay, too. Reaffirm that it was something that you were supposed to learn because you experienced it and then move on from it. It doesn't It's not like this weight on your ankle, this mistake that you made that you go through your day with. Mariana, thanks a lot for sharing all those uh, tips with us. Yeah, you're welcome. I think think they work for a lot of people. And there's a few more online at las.com. And I'd love to hear from families about how everything goes in the next few weeks or if they have any questions. There's a quick survey at the bottom of the story. Mariana Dale is KPCC's early childhood reporter, and you can hear her. Go to LAist.com to fill out her survey. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Uh, Mariana, thanks a lot. Thanks.
worked for uh, L.A. City Sanitation for 25 years. He's retired now. But before that, he was in the Marines. So when I asked him about getting a vaccine a long time ago, he said that the needle wouldn't work on him because as a Marine, he'd snap it off before it got through his arm. That's how tough Marines say they are. Yes, I know they are very tough. But there is a group of essential workers that in a lot of ways is sharing that kind of sentiment when it comes to the vaccine. We'll tell you all about who they are when Take Two continues. Stay with us. What you have to do It's hard to make a point When you're living so loud Democracy needs to be heard Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition Trustworthy, independent news is getting harder to find But it's out there And it matters for democracy A healthy local news ecosystem Leads to a stronger community You can feel the difference. And you get strong journalism from LAist. So donate today at LAist.com slash give. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. Even though firefighters in California were some of the first to be offered the COVID-19 vaccine, many have refused to take it. A problem given that they're regularly exposed to people infected with the virus. And there have been some big outbreaks at firehouses in recent months. Now, that said, there's one local fire department that's been looking to behavioral science to convince more firefighters to get vaccinated. KPCC science reporter Jacob Margolis has more. Back in the fall, L.A. County firefighter Mickey Juarez was sitting in his garage with his friend when, at his friend's urging, they started listening to a podcast. It was a guy speaking regarding the way the government works. Saying that the whole COVID vaccine response was sketchier than it seemed, which led Juarez down a conspiracy rabbit hole. Was it put out there by the government or by these pharmaceutical companies that already had this all in place and it was all for making money? He was especially worried that with his pre-existing lung condition, the vaccine could do more harm to him than good. Needless to say, he was obviously a hard no on getting inoculated. Meanwhile, Dr. Clayton Kazan, L.A. County Fire's medical director, was hearing this and all kinds of vaccine misinformation coming in from his roughly 3,000 firefighters. The ones that stand out are the concerns around infertility, that it causes the vaccine causes lower sperm counts. Side note, none of the conspiracy theories I've mentioned are true. It was clear to Kazan that the organization had a problem, and a survey backed that up. It showed that about 45% of their employees did not want to get the vaccine. So they realized they had to change minds. We were all over them about explaining the science, answering questions, doing live Q&A, putting out videos and linking to things and trying to compete against the noise of some of these social media rabbit holes. One other provocative idea came up while they were noodling over how to break firefighters out of their misinformation bubbles. They decided that if a firefighter wanted to refuse the vaccine, they couldn't just tick a box off online and not show up. They actually had to go into a vaccination site and decline in person. If you're sitting at a station with five people who are all kind of grumpy and don't want to get it, it's a lot easier to say no than when you have to show up to an area where you see your friends stepping up and taking it. and now you have a chance to ask your questions and maybe you'll just kind of roll your eyes and roll up your sleeve. Turns out that's just the kind of move that scientists who study vaccine acceptance think is brilliant. It certainly sounds like something that has behavioral science written all over it. 
Allison Buttenheim is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. So there's at least two things going on there, right? You've both made it the default, and you have to do something very deliberate to get out of it. So you make opting out harder than opting in, and you make it this sort of social event where you have to reveal to everybody um, what what your choice is. She says that these techniques play into a few things. One is our innate desire to follow the path of least resistance, which in this case would be getting the vaccine, and the need to be part of an in-group, which again, in this case, are the people getting the vaccine at the vaccination site. And in the end, Dr. Kazan's approach seems to have worked. As of late March, around 70% of L.A. County's firefighters have gotten the vaccine, much more than Orange County's 53%, or Cal Fire Riverside, who told me that their numbers could be below half. As for Juarez, the firefighter who said he'd never take the vaccine, he changed his mind after watching a video from Dr. Kazan. He still wasn't completely convinced he'd be okay if he got the shot, but ultimately decided that he had bigger concerns than his own health. I trust a lot of what he says, although I don't agree with everything. I do trust what he says. And when he was putting out all that information regarding the vaccine and the effects, and I think those outweighed me getting my parents sick if I was exposed. A week or so after getting the vaccine, Juarez actually contracted COVID-19. And he's all but certain that if he hadn't gotten that first shot, which could have offered some level of protection, that because of his pre-existing condition, he thinks he could have died. Covering Science, I'm Jacob Margolis. You can read more about this story on laist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Over 100 years ago, the city of Manhattan Beach condemned shoreline property owned by black families. L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hange says she's ashamed over the historical injustice and about one other thing that she says she is to blame for. Find out what that is when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. In Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm coming home now, right away. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. Back in the 1920s, black families in L.A. County flocked to Bruce's Beach, a popular coastal resort in Manhattan Beach. It had a dinner area and a dance hall, and it was one of the few places black beachgoers could go to enjoy themselves amid Jim Crow-era segregation. But the owners, Willa and Charles Bruce, and the black-owned homes and businesses that grew up around the resort were for years the targets of harassment and attacks from the KKK. The city council at the time joined in the efforts, blocking all nearby parking and putting up trespassing signs. And when that didn't work, Manhattan Beach used eminent domain laws to seize their land, paying them a fraction of what it's worth. The land remained vacant for decades to follow. And now in a landmark move, L.A. County is taking steps to return two parcels of that land back to the Bruce family. Supervisor Janice Hahn is leading the effort and joins us now for more. Welcome, Supervisor. Good to be with you. Now, how did you become aware of the history of Bruce's Beach and the surrounding community? I'm embarrassed to say that growing up here in Los Angeles, I did not know the story of Bruce's Beach. And it was only last year uh, during the 2020 awakening of this country and the revisiting of um, atrocities like Bruce's Beach that I became aware of it. And again, I'm embarrassed myself because somehow I thought that it was only in the South where 
uh, the extreme atrocities were inflicted upon African-American families. I didn't think L.A. County had these kinds of stories, but clearly we're not teaching this history in our schools. So when I did find out about it last year and then realized that the county of Los Angeles owned the two plots that were originally owned by the Bruce family, I knew that I had an opportunity to right a hundred-year-old wrong. What kinds of conversations have you been having with the Bruce family about what justice would look like for them? I began uh, reaching out to one of the remaining descendants, the great-great-grandson of Willa and Charles Bruce. His name is Anthony Bruce. Listening to him talk about it, clearly justice would mean, if anything, like a bare minimum, would be to return the property. But one of the things we've talked about is that, you know, this was not just an injustice inflicted on Willa and Charles Bruce. This was inflicted on generations of Bruce's who most certainly would have been millionaires if they had been allowed to keep this Manhattan Beach beachfront property to this day. So uh, there is a wealth gap. There's an income gap. There was a loss of opportunities for generations of the Bruces. So what can be done to make up for that? I'm not sure, but I do know that at a bare minimum, we have to return the property because it was clearly stolen from them. Now, the city of Manhattan Beach eventually turned the land over to the state of California, which then transferred the land to L.A. County in the 1990s. But to transfer back to the Bruces requires some legislation. Uh, Why and what needs to happen? So I can't just transfer the property uh, to the Bruce family because when the county of Los Angeles received the property from the state of California, it was to maintain and operate the beaches. And it specifically had restrictions uh, on the piece of property saying that we couldn't sell it, transfer it, make money off of it. Uh, So I actually need the law to allow for that. And State Senator Steve Bradford will be introducing a bill that would lift the restrictions and allow Los Angeles County to transfer this property to the Bruce family. What's the timeline for that bill? Senator Bradford wants to do an urgent bill. That means that it takes two-thirds of the state legislature to pass it, and then it gets signed by the governor, and it's enacted immediately. So this one's a little bit of a heavy lift uh, in Sacramento. It takes more uh, votes, but it's enacted immediately. We're hoping that it happens maybe in the next couple of months. A couple of months. Okay, now it'll also take the support of your colleagues on the county board to become a reality. How much do the other supervisors appear, at least for now, to support returning the land to the Bruce family? Well, I had my newest colleagues, Supervisor Holly Mitchell, who was one of our state senators in California, appear with me last week at a press conference announcing our intention to return the property. I can't imagine anyone voting against this. And I think Los Angeles County will become a model for the rest of the country because apparently uh, this will be a first where, you know, a government agency returns property that was taken from African-Americans. We're talking to L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn about the effort to return Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach to the Bruce family. Um, Last year, the city of Manhattan Beach established a commission to uh, look into what happened to the Bruce family in the 1920s. And while the city has now recognized the events, the Bruce family and others have been uh, critical of the city council's attitude about it. Supervisor, uh, there apparently is a lack of an apology. So what do you think now about how Manhattan Beach generally has handled this? And what else would you like to see from from the city officials? Well, The older I get, the less judgmental I am. (laughs) I I am not going to cast stones. I have my own sins of uh, omission in my life as well. And I think it's difficult for everyone to reconcile this racist past that, honestly, we've all been a part of. And it's easy to say, that happened 100 years ago. That wasn't me. That wasn't this city council. No one wants to be labeled a racist. But I do think we can look at other examples of issuing apologies. President Ronald Reagan uh, apologized to the uh, Japanese Americans. 
And he had nothing to do with it. And, you know, the Congress of the United States at that time had nothing to do with the Japanese internment during World War II. So there are examples that you can apologize for things that maybe you had nothing to do with. But as a society, as a kind of a collective apology, I think we would all do well to figure out how to do that in our, in our own lives. The Bruce family was not the only victim of, of uh, racist harassment and attacks in the 20s. Their, their chance at growing that generational wealth that we talked about was really taken from them. So what other kinds of corrections in history would you like to see? And what should policymakers be doing when we recognize institutionalized injustices of our past? The state of California has now created a reparations commission, the first time in the history of California, and they're going to begin looking at what kinds of things they can do to repair some of uh, these past atrocities that were inflicted on African-Americans. I think we should look at our University of California system. We should look at maybe scholarships, maybe free education. I think we should look at first-time homebuyer help for African-American families who were forbidden to purchase property in certain neighborhoods in California through redlining. So there's a lot of things I think we should start looking at to try to pay back and make amends for what we do. And let's be honest, most of us have inherited wealth from our parents, our grandparents. Very few people are self-made millionaires. And so all of us benefited from our parents and grandparents owning property, having businesses. And the fact that we stole that uh, from African-Americans is such an injustice. I don't know if we ever make up for it, but we ought to start looking everywhere possible to try to restore some of this wealth, restore some of these opportunities to generations who it was denied to. One more thing on that, Supervisor. Are you worried at all about maybe at some point having to draw a line? Because we're talking about uh, this particular example with Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach. But then, you know, what if there's a case to be made for the Latino families, uh, for Chavez Ravine, uh, where Dodger Stadium Mm -hmm. was built, or Japanese-American families Mm -hmm. who had their businesses and homes uh, taken from Mm -hmm. them during World War II? Are you afraid at all that this might be a box that can't ever have the top put back on it? Wouldn't that be great if we just kept going? We did pay financial restitution to Japanese Americans. I think it was only $20,000 a piece, but there is precedent for paying restitutions, for making reparations. And I think, you know, we should start looking at all of it. And I hope it opens up opportunities. And I'm not going to be the one to say, draw the line or stop. That's kind of where I am right now. I feel like I'm starting to do the right thing. And I hope others will follow. That's L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn. Supervisor, thank you very much. Thanks, A. You know, it's not often that I say how lucky I am, but this weekend showed me that life sometimes can give you a hug and a high five. I got to spend uh, this weekend with not only my grandmother, but my grandchildren. Someone my age with a grandmother and grandchildren that I get to spend time with. That was my weekend. Hope yours uh, was as good as that or even better. Uh, you can always uh, find us on Twitter. We're at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. Uh, Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. Yeah.